I invite you to open your scriptures to Revelation chapter 13. And this morning, on our Lord's Supper mornings, we keep our children with us. It's the one time a month that we don't dismiss them for their own lesson. And there's a lot that happens on a Lord's Supper morning, and I think that is very instructive for our children. Even if they do not take of the Lord's Supper, they see mom and or dad taking of the Lord's Supper and lifting the elements to their mouth. And at least the curiosity might bring forth some questions. In Revelation 13, some of your children might not get much of what I preach, understand much of what is coming out of here, um, but they will get something. And we believe that it is God's word that is the power to break up hardened hearts. And so we are thankful for the times that we do have our children with us. At a rare experience uh, where I woke up not wanting to preach this morning, partly because whether dreams or slightly uh, awake but not totally sleeping, just overwhelmed by accusations last night, which is interesting because we've looked at Satan as the accuser of the brothers. We also talked about that Satan doesn't need to make up things about us to accuse us. And so waking up feeling just an absolute unworthiness to preach. You know what the truth is? We are unworthy. We are undeserving. And Satan does accuse us. And he can bring things up from our past that we haven't thought about in years and accuse us. And I love in Revelation 12, it says they overcame him by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb. And that's why... We sing about Christ. That's why we worship Christ. That's why we celebrate this sort of, we call it a a meal, but it's not really a meal because we have about 160 people here we're trying to serve. but, But it's a meal. There's a table and we're served and we eat together. We wait for one another. Not because this is just what churches do. Not because we needed another ceremony. It's because we are reminding each other. We're proclaiming to one another. That his death, his shed blood, is the only hope we have for the forgiveness of sin. It is on that basis that we overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb. Because he alone is worthy. We're not. And I hope you understand that in a healthy sense this morning. That no one is deserving to do this apart from Christ. Start with a question. As we move into Revelation 13, the second part, when something looks Christian, when it looks like the word of God, how do you know whether it really is of God or not? How do you evaluate something that looks like it could be of God? And if our only guide is that it's done in the name of God or that the people are sincere or that it's accomplishing some good or that it's done in the name of religion or uses even Christian terminology, then you and those who follow you are in trouble. Because it's going to be down these very lines that the first beast, Antichrist, and the second beast, false prophet, will come at you and will come at the world. Do you know that Satan is fine with a Christless church? Satan is more than happy with a Christless sermon. He is very happy with Christless and deformed ordinances. He is very happy with Christless Christians. 
And I know that's an, an extreme oxymoron, but the fact is they're all over the world today. Eschatology, which is the study of last things, with the central and centering vision of God on his throne and the Lamb of God as conquering Christ, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, has a way to actually work into dead, hollow religion and things that appear to look like God's work but are not. Eschatology, in this sense, helps tremendously because it's a responsible handling of revelation is not just going to create sensational pictures and provide a roadmap. What it's going to do is exhort you to worship Jesus Christ alone. That's what Revelation does. And that's why you have all these differing interpretations, but even men who differ on interpretations, if they are coming back with an undivided heart and worshiping Jesus Christ, then Revelation has had its effect. Matter of fact, eschatology is so important. It seems that the pagan Chinese government knew this when they arrested Samuel Lamb. That's his English name. An evangelical Christian and leader of the house church movement for preaching, listen, an eschatological sermon. They were fine if he preached their version of Christianity. They were fine if he didn't preach the central and centering vision of God on his throne and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But once he did, he was arrested. China right now is experiencing a harvest of ingathering that in numbers, in sheer numbers alone, surpasses anything that people saw during the Great Awakening in North America. Two leaders involved with the Chinese Awakening observed that, quote, the distinguishing feature of the present-day church growth in China is the disciplined prayer life of every believer. See, that is one thing that we ought to be, be sensing as we move through Revelation. This dependence, this, this spiritual world, and a dependence on God. Matter of fact, another leader, uh, he writes this, the Chinese house church leaders call on those, quote, House church warriors, write your testimonies with your own blood. That sounds extreme to those of us who are in a culture where many American churches are not moving towards death for the sake of Christ, but are being amused to death. One of the leaders explains the reason for this. Quote, the devil who has kept Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu nations captive for thousands of years, will not surrender without a strong and bloody fight. Brother Yoon, one of the house church leaders, expects that of the 100,000 missionaries sent out from, the, from China, 10,000 will be martyrs in the first decade. In fact, unlike Western ministerial training, they say this, part of the training of our missionaries in China includes instruction on how to be an effective witness in prison. They march forward almost assured they're either going to meet with death or imprisonment. So last week, and I want you to look at this verse, look at verse 13 of chapter 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, in chapter 13, we have already been shown that the devil does not work alone. He doesn't work independently, 
but through people. So John sees this beast rising up out of the sea. There are actually two beasts in chapter 13. And it seems as though the first beast has a more military function where he conquers the saints taking over the world. And the second beast has more of a religious function. Matter of fact, later on, he's going to be identified as the false prophet. So there's this kind of priesthood that incites worship of the first beast. That is why Revelation 13.10 exhorts us to believe the truth and endure to the end. Now this morning, we're going to look at the second beast. Look at verse 11. Revelation chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So first, here you have the beast described. He's already seen a beast rise out of the sea. It's described, its work, its deception, what it does. But it's worth observing that the first beast comes from the sea. Where does this one come from? So the point of origin is different. This beast comes from the earth. By the way, both of these points, the sea and the earth, are in contrast to God's true servants who come from where? Revelation uses this idea. Angels who are in heaven and the one who comes down from heaven. So these points of origin are supposed to stand out. You have this sea beast. You have this earth beast. Now, many interpret this second beast as a type of priesthood since it secures worship for the first beast. We're going to see that in the rest of this chapter. Let me just give you a fast forward look to Revelation 19.20 so we know who we're talking about. And the beast was captured. Some, recall, some refer to the first beast as the Antichrist, but we're just going to call him the beast. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who in its presence, in the presence of this beast, had done the signs by which he deceives those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So the, so the picture here is a powerful ruler or priest or priesthood that incites widespread religious idolatry. Now that would not exclude, even as a foreshadowing, the Roman imperial worship that John's readership would have been familiar with, or Hinduism, or Islam, or Roman Catholicism. Look at verse 11 where it describes it. It had two horns like a lamb. Now that just might be a description of what it looked like. These two horns that come out... But it may also reflect another deception where Satan is now through this false prophet imitating the seven horned lamb of God of chapter five, verse six. Remember, Satan is the master imitator. He uses deception and disguises and diversions. But this lamb speaks like what? You're going you're to know him by what he says. He speaks like what? He speaks like the dragon. So instead of the meek Lamb of God who is God and who is the Word of God, this one speaks like the dragon. The danger is in what he says, but, but, but remember this, in a lot of religion, the danger is also in what they don't say. So he speaks like the dragon. Well, that's a description of the first beast. Look at the work of the beast. Look at the work of the false prophet. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Okay, so these two are together. The one seems to be in the midst of the other. 
and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So this is some kind of a worldwide religious deception whose mortal wound was healed. So this first beast, remember, he's mortally wounded. He may actually die. Maybe it's just an imitation, but he rises again. He fakes this resurrection and the world is enamored. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. This is the puppet of Satan. He is the false prophet. This is what he does. This is his work. Look at verse 12. And makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, how does the beast do this? How does this false prophet deceive the whole world? And that's the, that's the final section, the third section, verses 13 to 18. And this is a deception through counterfeit miracles. Now, John, in our study this morning, and during our adult Bible study, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is arranged according to seven signs, seven miracles. Eight, if you include his bodily resurrection. But these signs all have a purpose. Even the turning of water into wine is a sign. And he's going to explain that. And this sign isn't just because Jesus was providing beverage or because Jesus liked good wine. The sign is all about transformation. And after that first miracle, you're going to see that miraculous transformation in the hearts of people like Nicodemus and like the woman at the well. And all you have to do is ask for this water of life. You mean that's it? I only have to ask? Yes, that's the picture of the miracle. So, so John is familiar with signs. And these signs are supposed to point you to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Christ, so that believing you might have life in his name. Well, Satan picks up on this. And now guess what his beasts do? They perform signs. There's actually a progression here. Of the false prophet's activity. Three steps. First, he does signs that look like the work of God. That's why I started with this question. If it, how do you know if it's of God, that the source is actually of God, if it appears like the work of God? You're going to need a theological grid to run that through. And you can't simply rely on your own experience. Second, he uses the signs to deceive people into idolatry and third, he enforces the idolatry with the death penalty. Did you follow that? There's just a sequence here. So let's look at the first one. Look at verse 13. It. Who are we talking about? The beast, the false prophet. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. So he's doing these signs in the presence of this first beast. By, by doing those, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So the whole world, impressed by Satan's power, is caught up in worshiping the first beast. This is the priestly mission of the false prophet. Note this. Satan is very interested in worship. Satan isn't just extremely secular. A matter of fact, he uses the secular worldview and agenda as religion. He is highly religious. It is not by accident that Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and quotes scripture. 
Satan is highly religious and he's very interested in worship. As a matter of fact, in one of those attacks on Jesus, all these kingdoms I will give to you if only you what? Worship me. Well, this is what he's trying to do with the whole world and he's doing it through signs and wonders. He does signs that resemble the work of God. Secondly, he incites idolatry. Look at the second part of verse 14. Telling them to make an image for the beast. So here's the false prophet. He does signs and wonders. Okay? The whole world is deceived by this. Oh, this is good. This is from God. For the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lives. So there seems to be an attempted assassination. He comes back to life. They make this image for him. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. The false prophet now is allowed to make this image, this this idol, come to life. Do you not think that would be deceptive? I mean, I can just hear people walking in the streets and meeting at Starbucks and on the news. I mean, how can this not be of God? Look at this. We've never seen power like this before. And if at the same time that first beast can bring world peace between Palestine and in Israel and between the Arab world and the, the Muslim followers and the I mean, this this is the leader. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Here's the picture. People are holding out. They're not worshiping. And the beast is able to make the image speak and enforce the death penalty. It's crazy. Now, the act of worshiping an image would be very familiar to John's audience. Not many years after Revelation was written, we have evidence that Christians were, and I'll say this carefully, legally executed for refusing to worship the emperor's statue. This has happened throughout history. It was Domitian, only five years after John wrote this, who dedicated an imperial statue nearly 26 and a half feet tall in the imperial temple in Ephesus and demanded people to worship it. It would have been natural for John's readers as well as us to recall what Daniel's three friends were faced with. Let me read Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, I mean, Satan loves worship. I mean, this is a big music team that he's got. And he's doing the same thing he did in the Old Testament as he's done in the New Testament as he will do in this future empire. Now, when you hear the music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. If you do that, I love this, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fire furnace. By the way, here's the the real issue. Are you ready? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And is he not able? 
He is. Does he always deliver from the fiery furnace or from execution? No, he does not. Sometimes his deliverance is through that death. And he will deliver us out of your hand. And I love this. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us from the furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's a very clear Old Testament example of what the world will face under the beast. Now, these, these are the lines down which Satan works. So with a focus on end times... We need to be careful of anything that calls itself worship that is not biblical. Or anything that is idolatrous even within a Christian framework. For example, worshiping images of Mary and relics from church history is idolatry. Whether it's prayer to Mary or to devils, images of apostles or emperors, worship of angels or demons, of saints or Satan, or of the cross robbed of its true meaning, an empty wooden beam. These are all wrong objects of worship. It is idolatry and behind those stands a dragon. That's what Revelation is teaching us. And these are the lines down which Satan works. Do not expect there to be this ravenous, bloodthirsty, actual beast. It will be fine-tuned and beautiful religion. The Apostle Paul warned in 1 Corinthians, he says this, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So behind the idol is this demonic structure. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace, Revelation makes it very clear that that is not the normal narrative of the saints in the end times. Look at Revelation 13:7. Just go back up a few verses. This is talking about the first beast now. It also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This worldwide conquest leading to the saints' death. Look at verse 15, Revelation chapter 13. In it, the second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So the normal narrative for believers in the end times is death. That is why the Chinese house church trains on a seminary type level how their people should be effective witnesses in prison and when facing execution. Now, such activities need not surprise us. For Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 24 to 25, for false Christ's. The first beast, Antichrist, and false prophets, the second beast, a false prophet, will arise, and listen to what Jesus says, and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, Jesus says, I have told you beforehand. So we should not be taken by surprise. Now, the final point this morning, signs that deceive and produce idolatry. 
Look at verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. The idea here is all social classes, no one is exempt. He causes all to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. These are both very conspicuous places. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom, and we need to be very careful because there, there's, there, are, there is so much name-calling and identification on this that has been in error. So John actually says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now there's all kinds of things, the, 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 the classic gematria, what they call it, where you take the, the, the letters of an alphabet and you assign to them numerals and you come up with all kinds of names. Um, we're not interested in that. What you have to know is that this beast is a man. He's a ruler. And he will do exactly what this text explains he will do. Now, conspicuous mark or a conspicuous mark. Whether that's a branding or a tattoo or something, it seems to be a, a, a legitimate mark on a very conspicuous part of your body. And the reason is, the final point, is to get you to worship the image. To get the whole world to ultimately worship Satan, but through idolatry. So, if you don't have that mark, there's no buying, there's no selling. And every... Merciful parent is going to feel the pressure of wanting to provide for their family. By the way, the beast knows this. And so it's down those lines that he will try to pressure the entire world into idolatry. So the contrast here, and this is, you've got to really um, see this contrast. Believers are stamped with the seal of Christ. Remember this in Revelation 7, the seal of God. This is simply another imitation where Satan wants his people to be marked or sealed. The bottom, the bottom line then is this. There are no neutralities in this war. Not to belong to Christ is to belong to the beast. Okay? Economic pressure will be applied with severity. Look at that last part again. So that no one can buy, verse 17, or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name, whoever this, whoever this is, it's going to be right there. This calls for wisdom. Okay. Now, I understand this passage, and there are, there are different views that can be taken, but I understand this passage to describe a final tribulation period of history that is in the future. There have been other things that looked... Very close to this. Rome and the imperial worship cult within Rome, very close. But there will come a time, I believe, when the beast, Antichrist, comes to power and the second beast, false prophet, becomes either prime minister or high priest. Something like that. And they are working in tandem and this satanic duo will force the world to make a blatant choice, the entire world, a blatant choice between either Jesus Christ or the worship 
of the beast. Now, I want you to look forward and up because this is, this is heavy and this is serious. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Because basically what this says is accept the mark or die. It will become a capital crime to refuse to participate in the universal worship of the beast. But look at Revelation chapter 19 verse 20. And the beast was what? Like a good beast should be, it was what? Captured. And with it, the false prophet, okay, the second beast, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is their end. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Okay, remember the dragon that stands behind both beasts. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Then what what is our response as believers? I'll tell you what the Chinese church is doing. The true church in China is doing. They are encouraging fervent prayer of every believer and fervent witness of every believer. It's not just the professional's job to go make disciples. It's in every member ministry. Matter of fact, they encourage one another by saying things like this. We're going to storm the front line one last time for the King of Kings because He is worthy. And if we die, we can have a long vacation in the millennium. A thousand year vacation. That's how they talk to one another. So on, the, on, on, on that matter, a fervent prayer and a fervent witness, we need to learn from our brothers and sisters in Asia and the Middle East and in other persecuted countries. Because these are realities for them. And if we march toward sort of numb and entertained, we of all people are going to be the ones that are most likely to be deceived. So, as we move to the Lord's Supper now, at the very hour of Jesus' public shame on the cross, he was actually in the process of shaming his enemies. I want you to get this picture as we move to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he came, though he was rich, he became what? He became poor. Why? So that you might become rich. The devil does not do that. The devil wants to make you poor. The devil wants to enslave you and seduce you into darkness. Jesus came as the light of the world so that you no longer have to live in darkness. He comes as the meek and lowly Lamb of God. He rides into Jerusalem on a small colt. This is your king. But at the very hour of Jesus' public shame on the cross, he was in the process of shaming his enemies. Colossians 2.15 says this, as he was disarming the powers and authorities and making, quote, a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. 
His cross work is what defeats them. As a matter of fact, John will write in one of his smaller letters that Jesus came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And when you read Revelation 13, then praise ought to come from your heart because he did exactly that on the cross. A crucifixion involves several parts. A crucifixion by the Roman Empire was intended to humiliate It was actually purposefully delayed so the maximum humiliation and the maximum torment could be afflicted. It included a scourge carrying the upper beam to the place of execution and finally an agonizingly slow death after being impaled on those beams. The scourge had all the elements of public shaming. Jesus would have been stripped naked His hands would have been bound. He would have been publicly beaten. He would have had spit dripping down his face because they come up and they just spit as an honor in that culture. Anything of a striking on the face or of a spitting on the face was extreme shame. It wasn't just that they were being gross. They were actually saying, we are shaming you publicly to the highest degree possible. And then they repeatedly striked him On the head. Fake honor was then bestowed in a mock coronation ritual ceremony, adding to his humiliation. He's given a crown of thorns for his head. Oh, king. A purple robe to wear. And they shout, hail, king of the Jews, as they strike him. And they blindfold him and they strike him. Oh, prophesy to us who struck you. They mockingly bend their knees to him and everything is done to maximize the shame. And he dies. And three days later, guess what happened? On a Sunday morning, why I still am convinced as as long as we are able to, to worship on a Sunday morning to mark the resurrection, the bodily resurrection Resurrection, the glorious bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection, his resurrection is the great vindication that he who had been treated so shamefully and dishonorably is in fact the eternal son of God. So while the world is shaming him, the father is exalting him. While Satan is sitting there trying to destroy him, it's actually his own death that he is introducing The resurrection overturns the shame and Jesus is restored to his former position at the right hand of the father waiting for something. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. Why? Because he is now the honored son of God received by the father. Do you know the book of Revelation repeatedly uses the language of honor to describe Jesus Christ? I mean, you don't get through chapter one and John turns around to hear this thunder and he sees Jesus like he's never seen him before. And he bows down like a dead man. As anybody will do in the presence of the son of God. Because he sees him with flame eyes that are flame of fire and these burnished feet of bronze and white hair. John didn't expect Jesus to look like that. He bows down and Jesus says, don't fear. I am the one who was dead. 
but I am alive forevermore. These terms of incredible honor finally culminating in all the glory and honor of the nations being brought to Jesus in the new Jerusalem. That's why we've, we've kept this forward, Michael Gorman's theme of the book of Revelation, following the Lamb into the new creation. And do you know what? As the time gets closer and closer to the end, we will follow the Lamb through death, but into the new creation. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. You can close your scriptures. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not or, or nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because He is the way, definite article, the only way. He is the truth, the only truth. He is the life. No, no one goes into the Father except through the Lamb. So when John the Baptist saw him on earth, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know on the cross Jesus bore the shame of our sins as well as our guilt? You know, a mere execution that involved the shedding of blood would have atoned for guilt a swift execution that involved shedding of blood would have atoned for guilt, but you know what it would not have atoned for? Our shame. The beautiful picture here is that Jesus does bore upon himself your curse by becoming a curse for us, but not just the guilt and the penalty. The actual shame that he endured was so that you could be delivered from that shame before the Father. The Father, if you are in Christ... The Father will never turn away from you. There will never be a dark hour for you in the time of death where you have to cry, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That happened because Jesus took your shame and the penalty of your sin. His resurrection gives us victory, not only over the condemnation that we deserve from God's justice, but also the public victory over the shame of being disgraced before the world as those who are under God's curse. That shame has been removed. The author of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Satan, and the Antichrist, and the false prophet were publicly shamed when the Lord Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 